Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It happens, of course, that even when you think you're paying attention to the big picture, a little something slips by you. Stay with us. We're about to take you on an exciting and bumpy ride. That was election night of the year 2000, a night that soon started to fall apart, at least on TV. We're going to uh, now project an important win for Vice President Al Gore. NBC News projects that he wins the 25 electoral votes in the state of Florida. It turns out that Governor Jeb Bush was not his brother's keeper. The family had been joking, and seriously, that it could be a cold Thanksgiving. Behind NBC anchor Tom Brokaw, on a big graphic of the U.S., Florida turned blue and slid into Al Gore's column which would have been fantastic news for the Democrats if it had stuck. And the Bush campaign is now contesting the projected victory for Al Gore in the state of Florida. We have color that blue for Al Gore. If Florida is being contested and that gets it back in play, we shake up the map all over again. Of course, this was the election that went on and on, and for weeks, that election night red and blue map became a fixture on the news. Late night host David Letterman, who was getting impatient waiting for results to come in from Florida, saw the potential for a solution. Candidates have worked out a compromise, and thank God not a minute too soon. Here's how it's going to go. George W. Bush will be president for the red states. <laughs> Al W. Gore will be president for the blue states, and that's... We were looking at those maps for a long time, and we were talking about the red states and the blue states, initially, literally, which ones were going to be Bush states, which ones were going to be Gore states. That's Catherine Connor Martin, head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. And her job is to think about how the English language is changing right before our eyes. Those changes, she says, always reflect how culture is changing. And when millions of Americans watched the election returns come in on Election Day in 2000, what they were really seeing was the beginning of a cultural shift, an America divided into red and blue. But that was very quickly transferred to a notion of the kinds of qualities of a state that would vote Republican or would vote Democrat. And this also begat lots of other interesting languages. So we very quickly got purple states, and that was used to describe a swing state. And now we use red and blue and purple without the state part as these just all-purpose descriptors of aspects of the American political social milieu. Part of that milieu is certainly an increasing polarization since 2000, but the way that we talk about that polarization is, when you think about it, kind of random. Red is typically associated with communism and with socialist parties. So if you were to look at similar electoral maps in a European country, you're going to see the furthest left most likely will be depicted in red, not the furthest right, as is in the case in our example. But it's um, completely arbitrary that those colors happen to be shown. And that, Connor Martin says, is the nature of language. As words and phrases become useful, we pick them up, and then we forget, or maybe we never even knew, how they came to be. So if you think about the phrase, a flash in the pan, what are you picturing? A lot of people are picturing like a frying pan on a stove. 
And actually, that's exactly what I picture. Well, the pan in that case is actually part of an old kind of gun. The pan was someplace where gunpowder was put. And if something went wrong when you attempted to fire the gun, you would only get a flash in the pan. You would see the light, but the projectile wouldn't actually come out of the gun. So it's like a big sound, but nothing comes of it. But we can all say a flash in the pan. We know exactly what it means. We've all internalized this metaphor, but very few people know what the original literal meaning is. So this is a way that we can have these these connections that for a brief moment, some English speakers somewhere knew both of these things, the literal and the figurative. But then one of them goes away and you can have that figurative live on and we create new pictures in our heads to make sense of them. Connor Martin says that as technology and culture change around us, they're changing our language. English is molding itself to what we need now. And we'll get to the question of whether a world filled with texting and tweeting might lead us to a bigger, perhaps more concerning change. But first, apart from red states and blue states, here's another thing that seems to be shifting, according to Connor Martin, pronouns, which you might vaguely remember talking about once or twice in seventh grade. But what's going on now is something that no one has seen in hundreds of years. We don't know yet how this is going to work out, but it looks like we might be experiencing something now in English that hasn't really happened since the Middle English period in terms of a widespread change in pronoun use, which is a pretty, you know, pronouns are like something that we, you know, words like I and me and you and they and him and her, these are fundamental building blocks of language. So it's pretty hard for them to be nudged. So to hear the change that's going on, here's a sentence to consider. Anyone can come and pick up their paycheck. And you're saying there because you don't know. You're not specifying whether they're a male or female. Now, you could say... Anyone can come and pick up his paycheck, which makes a little more sense since anyone is singular. And that used to be done commonly. People knew that you meant men or women, but people usually just used him or his. But then that started seeming kind of lopsided, so we shifted to anyone can come and pick up his or her paycheck. Now, though, lots more people are saying what you heard Catherine Connor Martin say before. Anyone can come and pick up their paycheck. Why? First, she says, a cultural shift. More people have felt comfortable in recent years saying that they have a non-binary gender identity. If you say he or she, you're automatically excluding people who don't think of themselves as he or she. So that's another reason to use they in those non-specific contexts. Second, there's been a technological shift. As more and more relationships, personal, business, etc., exist mostly online, the gender of the person that you're sending messages to becomes a lot less clear. Especially if they have a name like Alex or if they have a name that we aren't familiar enough with the name inventory of their culture to understand what the gender is likely to be of that name. If we're interacting with people who we aren't seeing in person or if as a society we become less concerned with the specific gender of people we're we're referring to, who knows? we might start to prefer they in all kinds of contexts. So that hasn't happened yet, but I think it's a really interesting thing to watch. And that's an area where we see social change potentially driving linguistic change. When you help write dictionaries, you also think a lot about the pluses and minuses of that sort of linguistic change. And one minus many people see now is that English has become a disastrous buffet of acronyms. And, as you'll hear in this cell phone commercial, 
that kids have kind of gone down the rabbit hole. All this texting. OMG, INBD. It is a big deal. Who are you texting 50 times a day? IDK, my BFF Jill. Tell your BFF Jill that I'm taking away your phone. T-I-S-N-F. Me paying this bill, that's what's the S, Danielle. So is living in the land of OMG the end of civilization? Well, maybe. But only if civilization ended in the early 1900s. The first attestation of that is from 1917 in wow. a letter that was written to Winston Churchill. Oh, my gosh. I would have um, said like 1998. Yeah. 1917, huh? Okay. So that one is totally shocking. And I remember when we were working on that entry, and, you know, it's really unbelievable, but actually... While it's interesting, this 1917 example, it didn't actually beget any widespread usage of OMG. Then in 1994, we have a Usenet news group where someone says OMG, and that's probably indicative of in the mid-90s this actually being a thing that's suddenly in widespread use. It's spreading on the internet, and then people actually start to say it out loud. So so in fact, what you were thinking, the 1990s, was exactly right. (laughs) So somebody's writing Winston Churchill, 1917, and they write OMG in this letter. Yeah, he did. There's some some context there. So the knighthoods and honors in the UK. So they have these initialism titles like OBE, Order okay, of the British okay, Empire. Okay. So this letter says, I hear that a new order of knighthood is being considered. And then he says, OMG, brackets, <laughs> O, explanation, my God, explanation, shower it on the admiralty. <laughs> so he seems to be making a kind of pun about what a new order of knighthood would sound like. Hmm. And then this, oh, my God, phrase. Um, but it's unmistakable. He's definitely using OMG to mean, oh, my God. It's just that's an isolated use. It's in this one letter. Presumably Winston Churchill reads it, and then maybe no one ever thinks about it again. And it's completely spontaneously created among Internet users in the 1990s. Okay, so just to continue with our kind of downfall of civilization theme here, um, I want to ask you about a word that I remember teachers hating when I was in school. um, And it's the word like. Uh, I just wonder what its kind of amazing rise says to you. Uh, and I'm going to give you a little display of like in action. going to go back about 25 years here to the movie Clueless, which is about a bunch of kids at Beverly Hills High School in California. Uh, here's a speech in history class by the main character. It's about whether oppressed people should be given refuge in America. So, okay, like right now, for example, the Hadians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? But it's like, when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit-down dinner. But people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. Catherine, obviously that's a movie. But it exemplifies this worry people have that people are using fillers all the time. They rely on them. First of all, have people always worried that English was going downhill? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's change that we perceive in our lifetimes because it proceeds, like, generationally. The way that we speak changes over the course of our lives. Right. But different generations start in a different place, and then they end up in a different place. And so it's a really easy way to see that there are people who are doing things differently than was previously the norm and to feel that things are changing. And sometimes change makes people anxious. But I think there's also an interesting element with language where people seem to moralize and to see their language as superior 
in ways that are difficult to quantify from whatever is coming next. Um, and I, can I just say that I notice in that particular clip, there's something that I have heard a lot of people complain about on the radio, which is she begins with so. Oh, okay. <laughs> which I don't know if you've ever heard that complaint, but but as, as a lexicographer about 10 years ago, maybe, I was fielding a lot of questions about what's going on with people beginning an utterance with so. Hmm. And it, it's something that's existed for a long time, but it's become more common, just like the quotative all and certainly like, which, you know, the people who are against that, I think that battle has been lost. <laughs> so I have a question about that. When did people start using like so much as a filler? Um is this a is this a new thing that people try to fill their sentences with something when they can't? I don't know if like is used only as a filler. It may be also used as a sign that you're in the in crowd or you are cool. I, I don't know. But give me a sense of where this thing like comes from. Like as a filler goes back to the mid 20th century. OK. And then by the 1970s, another use of like emerged, which was this quotative like where you would say, I was talking to my friend and she was like, oh, my God, yeah, you're yeah. so amazing. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, so it's almost like the beginning of quote. You're right. It's like you're putting in quotes. But instead of quotes, which are weird in a spoken sentence, you're saying he was like, no, I'm never doing that. Yeah. In the clip from Clueless, she also used all that way. So you can say, I was all, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Right, right. And that still is very much, I think, marked as slang. Right. But the filler-like, which also emerged in the latter half of the 20th century, is just an ordinary part of American discourse now for everyone under probably the age of 45, 50. It's just pretty widespread. Is that any kind of sign to you of the decline and fall of English? No. Okay. <laughs> because language is changing all the time, and there have always been filler words, and people probably always disliked them. One interesting thing is that the 20th century is the beginning of an era in which we hear filler words more often because we have mass broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And that may make us more aware of them and see something like an um or a like. If uttered in colloquial speech, you might not notice at all. But if seen on a news broadcast, might strike you as the colloquial entering the sphere of the formal. And right. that might seem inappropriate. So if you think about a California housewife of the 19th century, she might get together with her girlfriends and have a whole interesting in-group language or innovate in, linguistically in different ways or use enunciate in different ways. But we may never know that because how would that ever have spread more widely? In most cases, it wouldn't have. With mass media, we first get to see depictions of colloquial speech. So fake things on in movies and TV, we see scripted colloquialisms. But now, with things like reality TV, but also podcasts, mm -hmm. and then in a written format, if you think about Twitter, which is sometimes a lot like speech, but also sometimes not like speech at all, but in, in any case, is this unedited kind of expression, these kinds of casual utterances and ways of expressing oneself are now available to a worldwide audience immediately. And so that creates much more opportunity for them to spread, and it makes us more aware of them. And perhaps it also creates more impetus to be opposed to them, because 
in the old way of novelty moving from person to person slowly over time, you might not have realized it was happening. There might have been more of a frog in a pot of boiling water situation where you'd hear it, something used by a few people, and then it builds up. And because it took more time, it might have seemed less intimidating, whereas now we can see language change while it's happening. Sometimes we can see, like, there's this, this famous word, fleek, in on fleek. Abraz on fleek. A young woman coined that word while making a Vine video of herself on the old social media video platform Vine. Old. This was in 2014. First of all, talk about what that word means, because <laughs> I have to say, I very recently learned this phrase, on fleek. Okay, so on fleek means, like, perfect, great, on point. And in this clip, this person who goes by the name of Peaches Monroe, she's a young black woman in Illinois. She's looking at her eyebrows and she says, eyebrows on fleek. And she's just inventing this word right there. It's just like, they're so perfect. And that's what I'm going to call them. How do we know that she was inventing it, that like, it wasn't her circle friends also used it? We know she just came up with it? We know because people have asked her, and that's and that's what she said. Okay. Um, so we found her, and that's another crazy thing about the world today. So we have no reason to disbelieve that this just came to her, but it struck a chord for whatever reason. And very quickly, this word first started to be spread through hip-hop music, so it occurred in the lyrics of some songs. I pull up, like, what's up? Everything on fleek, I do it. Nice. And then it became popular on social media. People are using this term on fleek. And within like nine months, it's being co-opted by brands. And I can't remember exactly who this is, but maybe Arby's or or IHOP or something has a thing with like pancakes on fleek. (laughs) (laughs) So in like less than a year, you have something going from a spontaneous utterance by an individual who is not famous and doesn't otherwise have a huge platform to have gone this whole cycle. Once your word is being appropriated by brands, it's almost dead. So you you have this entire slang cycle happening in this really much shorter period of time. So that's a way that I think the world of today is probably really different from the linguistic change world of English in the past. Hmm. Are there groups of people that you think have like an outsized influence on language, Uh, whether it's young people, uh, valley girls, of course, uh, rose to prominence in the 1980s, and then people of all ages and geographies started to pick up some of the ways that they talked. Um, I just wonder if anybody kind of jumps out at you, um, maybe especially if we don't really register how much power they have. I think that's quite possible. I would say where the influence lies changes over time. So in a period like World War I, World War II, or Vietnam, where you have all of these, you know, primarily young men from different walks of life coming together and working in the military for a while, in periods like that, we see military usage becoming really powerful and important. But that's not always the case. Now, it's very clear that African-American English is a huge driver of linguistic innovation, you know, on a worldwide scale. And what makes you think that? Like, why is it clear to you? Well, if you look at what people think of as internet slang or youth slang, a lot of the time, once you peel back the layers, it turns out to actually be African-American English in origin. So you have the power of hip-hop music, which is a really 
lyrics-oriented art form. Um, you have just black Twitter as a function. You have these milieus that are creating and experimenting with language and that are regarded as being cool or mm -hmm. they're influential. Mm -hmm. They're culturally and socially influential in a way that people borrow that language, even if they don't know where it's coming from. Um, you know, that's where we get the word cool from. That came to us from jazz slang really? and originally was African-American. I think the first usage that we know of that is from Zora Neale Hurston. Finally, um, I've got to ask, since you literally help write dictionaries, uh, and we've been talking about all these ways in which English is evolving and turning into something different, uh, do you happen to have a favorite word? I have a favorite word that a friend of mine, who's also a lexicographer, <laughs> gives as her favorite word. And when I heard it, I thought, oh, that's so good. I want it to be my favorite word, too. Okay. And, and that word is mondegreen. Wow, I don't know that one. Okay, so a mondegreen is a misunderstood or misinterpreted word or phrase resulting from a mishearing, especially of the lyrics to a song. Like, think of a, a, a song that you commonly misunderstand. I, totally. Ground, grounds in my coffee instead of clouds in my coffee. I had some dreams, they were clouds in my coffee, clouds in my coffee. So it comes from a poem that has the phrase, laid him on the green. It's in the ballad of the Bonnie Earl of Murray. Okay. <laughs> and so laid him on the green is interpreted as Lady Mondegreen. <laughs> and this was proposed in 1954 as kind of a word to be used for mishearings of that type. And it's caught on since then. No, that's really helpful. That, that's a good 30% of all lyrics I've ever heard are, is a Mondegreen situation. Yeah, I actually just looked up one of these yesterday because it was <laughs> Blinded by the Light. Okay. It just sounds like a douche. <laughs> Apparently it's like a deuce. But okay. I always hear douche and that makes me laugh because that makes the lyric really funny. That that's a great favorite word while you're figuring out what your, you know, <laughs> ultimate favorite word is. I'll give it some thought. <laughs> Sounds good. Catherine Connor Martin is the head of US dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. And if you want to know more about the origin story of the words and phrases we've talked about, from like to red states and blue states to, of course, Mondegreen, we've got it all for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Teresa Lawler. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.